0: This is Season 1 of the Free Flow Podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast. Our show is supported in part by the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation, and our theme music was created by Nate Hedgee and Wartime Blues. Today, we welcome the voice of Idaho-based writer and storyteller, Seemarie Furman. Seemarie is the nonfiction editor at High Desert Journal, and her essays and poems have been featured in Emergence Magazine, Yellow Medicine Review, and the Whitefish Review, among many other publications. Seemarie is a lover of dogs and salmon, history and mountains, and, as you'll find out here, rivers. On this episode of the podcast, C. Marie reads her essay Hell's Canyon Revival. She explores several dualities here, including her own heritage and identity and the dichotomous relationship between writing as an art and the colonialist limitations of the English language. C. Marie's story takes us to Hell's Canyon on the Snake River, which is the largest tributary to the Columbia. Hell's Canyon Dam is the next dam upstream from Lower Granite Dam, which is one of the four dams on the Lower Snake being considered for decommissioning. This comes after Republican Idaho Congressman Mike Simpson recently proposed a very controversial $33 billion plan to dismantle the earthen portions of the four Lower Snake River dams. The dam issue is not as simple as clean energy or hydropower and infrastructure versus healthy ecosystems and the survival of species like salmon and killer whales. The question of decommissioning the lower Snake River dams is on both sides of the discussion, an issue of legacy and pride. C. Marie's essay is a personal account of her relationship to the Snake River, the tension within the landscape and its history, and her place
1: within its remaining wildness. This canyon does not abide a trail. The steepness of its walls and the scree-covered slopes implies downward movement. But we are going up, to the base of the limestone cliffs. The dogs have an easier time of it. My partner, Caleb, and I have to scramble. We slide, reaching for sagebrush and nine bark branches as handholds. What trails exist here are made by deer and elk coming down from ridgetop refuges to drink from Allison Creek. I make my way to a small bench and catch my breath. From here, it is a matter of guesswork. The way to Redfish Cave is not marked. It is not on a map. The entrance cannot be seen until you are atop it. Rumor and vague directions are our guides. Two false starts lead us nowhere. On the third, we push past Brush at the end of a narrow precipice and find ourselves standing at the entrance. I step forward. Wrap my fingers around the steel cemented into the mouth of the cave and press my face between the bars into the darkness. The day is wet and gray, the metal cold against my cheeks. When finally my eyes adjust, I see it. At the far end of Redfish Cave, in the area called the Twilight Zone, a pictograph of a salmon. The air escaping the cave smells like the earth when touched by rain. Petrichor. My eyes adjust to the darkness, and I see the fine soil, cave dust, and the loose rocks and random leaves that cover the floor. I am eager to go in, yearning to sit in the place the artist sat, to examine the dots, each a fingerprint brought together in the shape of a salmon. I want to touch the fish, the red paint of blood and plant, as if they might somehow touch me back, fill me with a history I do not know connect me to a past forgotten or sleeping in my own blood. I move my hand toward the salmon and pause. I know the damage modern hands have made. I hold my arm in the air, a bridge only my imagination can cross. Carefully, we make our way down from Redfish Cave, down Allison Creek, and finally to the dam-stilled waters of the Snake River. When we reach the edge of the reservoir, the salmon is still haunting me, the cave is about a quarter mile above the channel where the Snake River used to flow free. For hundreds or more years, this canyon was inhabited by native people. Now it is a national recreation site and designated wilderness. The recent titles provide protection for the area and for Redfish Cave, but came after the dams and the subsequent burials of native land, of art. Nearly all traces of indigenous history in Hills Canyon Are buried under 200 feet of water and countless silt and debris layers. Salmon have not swum these waters in over half a century. From 1956 to 1967, three dams were built in succession along this part of the Snake: Brownlee, Oxbow, and Hell's Canyon. Idaho Power, the company commissioned to build the dams, agreed to create and maintain a viable way in which salmon and steelhead would bypass the barriers and continued their natural migration to their natal waters some 300 river miles upstream. In the fall of 1958, the company's attempt to trap and transport the salmon from the newly created Oxbow Dam's base failed. 4,000 fish died in the splash pools, and 7,000 more perished in transport. 11,000 salmon dead in one day. The disaster dubbed the Oxbow incident, resulted in a federal investigation, but no successful remedy could be found. Idaho Power made a promise to instill a handful of hatcheries, yet no attempt was ever made for fish passage past Hell's Canyon Dam. In 1967, when the entire three-dam project was completed, thousands of years of migration ended. The Snake River had seen its last run. The only salmon remaining above Hell's Canyon Dam would be painted on the wall of a cave. Caleb and I returned to Hell's Canyon every spring. We escaped the deep snow at our cabin in McCall and embraced spring at a lower elevation. Trailing our camper behind the truck, we exchanged a diachromatic backdrop of pine and snow for one painted with bright splotches of yellow, balsam root arrowleaf, pink cherry blossoms, and clear bluebird song. We trade our skis for hiking shoes and snow for cold but open water. We are eager to explore, to stretch our legs, so we waste no time setting up. From our camp by the reservoir, which also serves as a border between Idaho and Oregon, we slide our canoe into the water, paddle to the opposite shore, and hike up Spring Creek. In an hour, we have made the ridge. From atop the canyon wall, we barely make out the green dot that is our canoe. Around and above us is an endless panorama of buckskin and blue. Across the river, back in Idaho, we can see the 9,000-foot peaks of the Seven Devils. Behind us lies the two million acres of the Wallowa-Whitman National Forest. Below us is the deepest gorge in the United States and 36 miles of reservoir. We eat our lunch among wolf tracks and elk droppings. As Caleb and the dogs nap, I write, I'm trying in a few words to capture the vastness, but like trying to photograph the area, I realize my lens is too small. I cross out what I've written and pocket my notebook. Cumulus clouds pile in from the south and the sky darkens. Wind tosses the dog's ears. We hike back down to the canoe just as the rain begins. I lie in bed that evening and gaze out across the water to a knuckle of land we have named Bone Island. It's not really fair to call it an island. It is part of the bar we are camped on, a knob left stranded by the dam. It is also unfair to give it such an ominous name, but there is a lot of unfair naming in this area. Hell's Canyon, for example, is not apropos for a place filled with so much beauty and life. The seven devils that guard the canyon may seem wicked to those that attempt their summit, but the name belies their Teton-like grandeur. I wonder who chose these names, and why? What did native people call this canyon? What words explain the place to them? How do we begin to describe the complexity and loveliness of this diverse landscape in just a name? I try and falter. Disgusted by the irony of my attempt, I roll away from the window and fall to sleep. We wake to the sound of rain falling on the metal roof. Caleb slips out with the dogs for a morning run, and I stay in the camper to write. From the reservoir, I hear the splash of geese landing and their chatty honks. Ducks call from the shore of the island. Swans float by in silence. Again, I discard half-written lines. I feel a poem. I sense it, but I cannot bring it to paper. When I try, the words seem rote, lifeless. They are without depths or freshness, and what images I conjure fall flat. I am trying to write about the Snake River— I want to write about the days when it was free, but rather than giving the image control, I try to govern it, force it into what I think it should be, something erudite and clever. And before it can even crest, I shove it back into the dark. Rain thrums the roof. I trade my poem for the poems of others, but soon abandon them as well. I reach for a book of theory and stop. The directions for writing poetry won't be found in a book. Outside, rain trembles the water. Caleb and the dogs return, smelling fresh and smiling wide-eyed at all they have seen. Eager for my own adventure, I suggest a drive to the dam. The windshield wipers work to clear our view as we stare at the massive cement wall that restrains the Snake River. A single outlet spews water 150 feet before it crashes into a pool beneath and begins its journey, finally, toward the Columbia. From here, the dam looks like a castle— and a prison. Wires strung from the parapet could as easily be gossamer as razor wire, but instead, they are cables carrying as much as 391 megawatts of electricity. The fact that I have no idea how much electricity that is, or how the dam even made it, creates a sense of awe, wonder. I see the craftsmanship, the art and the design, the impossibility of it all, and I am aware that at one time, This was championed as a source for renewable energy, a way to power the West. It is genius, and it is deadly, and I cannot forget, despite the dam's impressiveness, its cost, thousands of salmon, native land and art, the wildness of the river. Even as I have become complicit in the dam's existence, reliant on its power, I am no less filled with shame and regret. How do we trade one wonder for another? When does convenience and comfort trump wildness? The sun breaks from the clouds and rainbows rise in the midst of the cascading water. This is the end of the line for spawning salmon and the source of energy that lights our home. Across the river, a mountain goat ascends a steep canyon wall. A snow-white kid follows at her hooves. Idaho boasts the cheapest power in the United States. Archibald Ritchie and Dave Eccles planted an orchard on Big Bar, where we are camped in 1888. The graves of the two men lay side by side on the west side of the highway. The Eccles Ranch provided most of the fruit and vegetables to the mining camps in the Seven Devil and surrounding area. Their trees still line the terraces that serve as the campground. The fruit they bear is refreshment in the summer when temperatures go well above 90 degrees, and a rich snack for the deer that crossed the highway to feed on the fallen apples and apricots. A sign, placed by the Forest Service, gives a detailed history of both the ranchers and the ranch. No mention is made of the people that lived here before Ritchie and Eccles. To understand the native history of Big Bar, one must do their own research. Pre-dam photos show Big Bar as a grassy, meadow-like slope. Archaeology reports list... The many artifacts found here and date them back to hundreds of years of encampment. From places like Big Bar and throughout the drainage, native people fished for salmon, hunted deer, elk, and mountain goats. Walking its length, Caleb and I have found the hollows of house pits but little else. What could be gathered was, and the rest was drowned. The archaeology reports, black and white photos, and what artifacts were taken are locked away in steel cabinets and urban offices. I'm sure other things, arrowheads and the like, are in private collections, rattled in the pockets of dam builders, and were the prize of weekend recreationists. What is left is left for the imagination. That evening, our faces lit by campfire, Caleb and I ponder a pre-Dam Hell's Canyon— On a warm night such as this, would the canyon walls echo song and laughter? Would we hear the unfamiliar words of the Nez Perce? No, we realize. Though their fires might light the canyon walls, little would be heard over the river. I look toward the water and try to imagine the sound it made then. I cannot. I wonder then about the day the river was dammed. Was the water's rise slow enough to escape? Or did deer and rabbits, snakes and mice run from it? I imagine the silence that must have filled the canyon when the reservoir was finally full. A silence, like empty palms placed to ears. We wake early to clear skies and a light breeze that scatters cherry blossoms through the air and onto the water. We shoulder our packs for a hike that will take us up and around the Idaho side from one drainage to another. The dogs race ahead, but we call them back, keep them beside us as we begin the two-mile walk on the road that follows the river to the trailhead. Cars here have short sight lines around twisting corners. The dogs have no understanding of this. Though the day is bright, the sun has yet to crest the eastern ridge. A mile into the walk, we hear the honk of a goose. At first, because we are used to the sound, we think nothing of it, but this call is agitated, different from the others we have heard. Soon it is above us, its slender length cutting through the brightening blue, and then something behind, silent, gaining on the goose. We recognize it immediately, white head and chest, thick body, it's a bald eagle. Still honking, the goose increases its speed. The eagle gains one for every two of the other wingbeats. Finally, the eagle dives toward the goose. It misses, and the goose starts a descent to the water. I place my hand on Caleb's arm. Later, we will both admit we were cheering for the goose. But it would not matter. The eagle dove again, and silence filled the canyon. We watched the raptor carry its prey to the other side of the river, and I make a note of the boulder it lands on. I let go of my breath. My hand falls from Caleb's arm. We stand motionless and silent at the side of the road, and then, as if called, turn and start walking again toward the trailhead. As we hike the switchbacks above Kinney Creek, I allow more questions to fill me. Why did I root for the goose and not the eagle? If both had an equal chance of dying, which I would argue they did, who then would I root for? And what if, somehow, all of the tragedy of nature was held from me? If I experienced no death, never saw winter or the bones of an animal eaten by another, would my experience of nature be somehow hampered? Does one temper the other as the name Hell's Canyon tempers this gorge? I write the questions and what answers I think I know, and by the time we reach the summit above Kinney Creek, I have filled four pages. The hard walking behind us, we stop for lunch. I sit with my back against the pine, and my eyes drift down to the reservoir. Before the dams, the water rose with snowmelt and rain, fell with seasons and drought. Salmon spawned up the Snake River to creeks and streams far beyond where I can see. After spawning, their deaths provided food for grizzlies, birds, insects, and eventually the nutrients they carried from the ocean fed trees and shrubs. The dams not only ended migrations, but affected the livelihood of the beings upstream. Native and white fishermen could no longer count on salmon for food. In Stanley, Idaho, 200 miles upstream, residents reported that the river had gone quiet, had become seemingly lifeless, that the river's spirit had been killed in exchange for cheap power. Here, in the wildness of Hell's Canyon, lies also the result of man's vast and brilliant imagination. Behind me, a mostly untouched wilderness with some of the most rugged and unforgiving terrain in the Pacific Northwest. Below me, a display of human ingenuity, just as exacting but entirely unwild. The Snake River's energy is transmuted into electricity that brings light to back porches, refrigerates milk as far away as Montana, and powers hospitals in Boise. Can I love the wilderness and still appreciate the brilliance of the dam? Can we embrace the present while protecting history? Who will I choose, the eagle or the goose? And how will we, I, pay for the loss of the other upstream? I cover one eye, then the other. I try to see the canyon without the dam, and then its opposite, but neither vision is correct. I lean into my notebook again and write. The answer, I find, is the definition, the explanation of poetry itself. Be it the poetry of living or the poetry created by the living, it is a stir of imagination, intense emotion. It is a sum greater than all its parts. It is our last morning in the canyon. We rise early, moving slowly as we make breakfast and pack lunch. Even the dogs resist the inevitable, leaving a place that has come in just a few days to feel like home. None of us bounds out of the camper, and when we put the canoe in the glassy water. We do it so gently that the pair of ducks swimming just off the bank remain within reach as we float past them. The morning is brilliant, even though the sun has barely crested the horizon. We watch deer as they feed across the sunlit slope and do not let the grumble of ravens hasten our movement. From somewhere behind us, we hear a quail call Chicago. A canyon wren notes our passing with a loud cascade of song. We find the boulder the eagle landed on and beached the canoe upstream. Perhaps I was expecting a beak, a bright orange foot, carnage and blood, but there is none of that. Only feathers, clean and white down, breast feathers, underbelly. A thin breeze lifts them, and they settle like a sigh. I kneel before the granite and choose two. I place the feathers in my pocket, and we walk back to the canoe. We paddle the reservoir in silence. I do not look to the canyon walls or sky, but down, down at the water's smooth surface, so calm it is as if we are gliding across a mirror. The blue of sky, green of sage and pine, and the gray of limestone are repeated on the water. Carp, now the most abundant fish here, lounge close to the surface, warming in the morning sun. We float within inches before they break stillness and dive. I try to follow one of their shapes into the depths but quickly lose sight as it travels into the dark. Somewhere beneath me, in waters dammed, history is covered with silt, wildness erased by water. I want the canoe to float us back in time so I might hear the roar of the Snake River in spring, see it crash from boulder to boulder. I want to hear singing, watch the artist climb the slope to the cave. I want to know the excitement of spawning salmon. I reach to the reservoir, And just as I touch my own reflection, I also erase it. If you make it past the gate guarding Redfish Cave, past the ochre salmon forever swimming upstream, you will come to two panels of art that cannot be seen from the entrance. Stop for a moment and wonder at what you see. Is it a pregnant woman, a man who swallowed the sun? Is the figure beside it a mountain goat, a dog? Do not mind the shiny black millipede crawling on the damp ceiling above you, and do not touch the art as modern fingers erase ancient ones. To your right is a tunnel you will barely squeeze through. Get on your belly. Let the spiders walk across your bridge of fingers. Pull yourself through the passage and into the womb of Redfish Cave. To your right, the alert, curious eyes of a pack rat. In front of you, a formation whose age defies our understanding of time and denounces our touch. Dash your headlamp, allow the dark to overcome you, and then seek those small shafts of light that have followed you in, that you will follow out. And as you leave Redfish Cave and re-enter the world before you, remember the pack rat. She's still here, and in her midden is a perfect white feather. So when I think of Hell's Canyon and the fact that it's the the um, deepest gorge in the United States and that it separates both uh, Idaho and Oregon with the river running through it, I think it naturally in our mind kind of creates a, a binary a divide and that set up the story perfectly. That deep cut and and the deep things that run between both politically and physically, And the things that even the way the landscape looks on on either side set up the way to really look into the binaries that exist within us and the binaries that exist in history and in the land and politically and how we've set those up and how we bring them together. And it was there that I could look at how do I exist as these two people, as both Native and non-Native, the person who needs that electricity and and needs it to live a contemporary life but also the native for whom a lifestyle was lost and a river's life blood or, or life spirit was lost and what happens there in Hell's Canyon and with that this, the last salmon up behind bars as if it were in prison painted on a wall what happens there is you naturally get a feeling of of a divide and so within that story within House Canyon Revival I was able to really explore that divide and how I brought that together or held it within myself. Richard Nelson in in his book The Island Within talks about how native cultures when asked you know what it means to be connected to nature didn't know what he was talking about, because they don't see nature as different from themselves. I would say that the Snake River and Hell's Canyon and that area, I don't think that they could ever be disconnected. And I know that there are still Nez Perce that go there to collect herbs and to collect medicine, to practice ceremony. The river is still deeply imbued in Nez Perce culture and in Nez Perce life. And I don't, despite the dam, I don't think that those that that culture and the people can ever be separated. The Snake River is Nez Perce, and Nez Perce is Snake River. So they're still very deeply connected, and I think would be huge advocates for removal of the dam and to see salmon back in the river again. I have a, a long history with rivers that really became highlighted when uh, my husband, Randy, died kayaking the Clarks Fork near Cody, Wyoming. At first, it was a very tormented relationship, and then it became a bonded relationship. And in a way, for me to forgive everything was through the river. So when I met Caleb, one of our first trips was camping down at Hell's Canyon, and um, we had just gone, you know, car camping with our canoe. And the place is so imbued with stillness and silence; um, it feels surreal with the dam and the art and um, knowing that you're you're on a campsite that was that has been a campsite for thousands of years there's a there's something very special about that place and very quiet and and allows for reflection it's it's just a, it's a wonderful place to go and reflect it was wonderful to get on the river and look in and see your face looking back at you and knowing that you're part of, of both the problem and part of what it's gonna take to make it okay again.
0: There are over 18 dams on the Columbia and Snake rivers, at least eight of which seriously and dramatically alter the habitat and migration patterns of anadromous fish, namely salmon and steelhead. Anadromous fish begin their life journeys in inland streams and lakes. They travel to the ocean, spend around two years in the salt water, and then swim back upstream to the exact region of their birth, guided by a mysterious instinct. And there they spawn. They mate, lay eggs, and then their bodies decompose, returning seaborne nutrients to the mountain headwaters, literally delivering the biological abundance of the ocean, to these inland ecosystems. Big dams interrupt that migration with their very existence. Big dams can cause the eventual loss of individual ecosystem components and the homogenization of previously unique discrete characteristics. Hatchery fish outcompete native origin fish, weakening a once robust gene pool and diminishing biological diversity. On the Snake River, returning adult salmon and steelhead are captured, tagged, bred, barged, allowed everything but to return to their natural spawning grounds. This intervention and manipulation in the name of species restoration comes at an annual cost of about $270 million, which is paid in large part by the taxpayers and energy consumers of the Pacific Northwest. More symptoms of an unhealthy watershed may include stagnant, warming water, accumulation of sediment, diminished water quality, strange congregations of marine mammals and predatory seabirds, hungry terrestrial carnivores, and the loss of biological productivity in mountain stream beds. In the Pacific Northwest, researchers blame the shrinking population of the southern resident orcas on a dwindling salmon supply, and they blame the salmon shortage in large part on the four big dams on the Lower Snake River. And then there's the cultural piece. The tribes in the Snake and Columbia River Basins were guaranteed preservation of their way of life as salmon-centric cultures in exchange for their lands and waters, which have been enthusiastically developed, diverted, and dammed over the last century. In essence, tribes were forced by treaties to trade their cultural and spiritual anchor and main source of nourishment and income for empty nets and broken promises. We are so grateful to see Marie Furman for sharing this piece with us and for graciously agreeing to teach a Free Flow Institute course this coming July um, in the South Fork Salmon River drainage. To learn more about Sea Marie, our work at Free Flow Institute, or the Snake River, head over to freeflowinstitute.com. As always, thank you to the Montana Arts Council, the Prop Foundation, and the greater Free Flow community for supporting the podcast. You can subscribe to the Free Flow podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening.